So where is the spot Bitcoin ETF? Is it coming this year? Will the SPY lose its crown? This episode, we're going to be talking about 2023 ETF trends. And I am thrilled to have Nate Geraci, host of the ETF Prime podcast and president of the ETF store, and Phil Beck, founder of Armada ETFs. I wanted to have this talk because a lot of advisors just look at ETFs like, well, kind of there. And there's a lot under the surface, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So let's get into the show. Okay, guys, so 2023 is here. What do you see in the ETF realm as happening? Well, I'll start by saying that I think we're going to continue to see massive inflows into ETFs. And the backdrop of that is we this trend has been intact for the, the past decade plus, where we're seeing advisors and investors move out of expensive, underperforming, uh, active mutual funds and into lower cost, uh, more transparent ETFs, more tax efficient ETFs. And we can certainly talk about the, the tax efficiency. But uh, if you look at 2021, there was about 900 plus billion that went into ETFs last year in a very challenging market environment where we had the S&P 500 down 18%, broad bonds down 13%. There was still over 600 billion into ETFs. And I, I think there are a number of factors for that. Again, we have this wave of advisors that are moving to a fee-based model. Part of that is then also uh, putting their clients into to lower cost ETFs. But ETFs just offer a lot of investment options. They're, they're very easy to construct portfolios with. So I'll start with that very high level backdrop. I'm sure Phil has uh, some, some more granular uh, comments to add. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think you nailed it. I mean, I mean, one of the, one of the interesting things about ETFs is ETFs are just you know the vehicle; they're just the wrapper around the investment strategy. And there are so many ETFs covering so many different strategies and asset classes now that when you think about what's happening in ETFs, it's almost like saying what's happening in global macro, what's happening in the investment universe. And you know, to that end, I don't know if I have a lot of strong predictions for 2023, but what I do sense is that we're coming out of a market regime that we've been in for, you know, probably, you know, for the most part for 12 years since the global financial crisis, which has been just put all your money into U.S. equity, you know, concentrated into large cap. You want growth, you want market cap weight. Um, and and that's been uh, a never ending tidal wave. I think that might be coming to an end, not, not to say necessarily that we're going to have an equity market crash, but that strategies that are more based on value or fundamentals or, or different things, other alternative asset classes, might you know really start to pick up steam in a way that they haven't in a long time. We're starting to see that now. If that continues, we could see that. So you know, how does that translate to ETFs? Well, there are ETFs that cover all those strategies, and we might see some real surprises um, now that investors have to think a little more hard, a little more critically about how they're allocating. Yeah, I 100% agree with that because if you look again over the past decade or so, the bulk of flows have gone into market cap weighted, very cheap ETFs. But now that we have this, this market shift, uh, I think that investors are going to be looking at alternative exposure to the market. So whether that's very high level value oriented strategies, looking into alternative asset classes, physical gold, uh, different realms of fixed income. To, to your point, Phil, ETFs now offer uh, exposure to every nook and cranny of the market, every different type of investment strategy. And so I, I think there's just an alignment of factors. We already had this movement into ETFs. Now we have this market regime shift. And I, I think ETFs are going to be uh, in a good spot to capitalize on that. 
So one thing that I didn't mention was that no security mentions here can be construed as a recommendation, okay? That do your own research and nothing can be interpreted as investment advice. But what are what are the most interesting ETF trends where there have been ETFs made to gain exposure to things that you never would have imagined that was so surprising, I, unusual, sure. intriguing? I, you know, I think that, um, it's great that there is, you know, that there is a, um, you know, a shirt for every day that, there, that there's, you know, something for everyone, right? So everyone, you know, everyone who has a specific ethos or wants to invest a certain way that, you know, they should have products to match. They should have availability. It's really up to the issuer to say, is there a market for this or not? But what I think is really, you know, really interesting, what we're starting to see is, is a proliferation of products that use more complex option strategies to achieve different things like downside protection and defined outcomes. And the reason why that's interesting is because, you know, the basic tenant of portfolio construction for a long time has been modern portfolio theory, which is, you know, essentially built on the foundation that stocks and bonds, you know, there's other components, but the main core uh, um, piece is that stocks and bonds have a low correlation to each other. And by being in stocks and bonds and maybe other asset classes too, that you get the diversification benefits. And that, that basic idea has failed in 2022, where both stocks and bonds have gone down, where the correlation between stocks and bonds has, has gone up. So, you know, that's not to say that there's no basis to modern portfolio theory, or it's going to fail again, or, or people are going to move away from it. But it does say that, you know, it, it is time for people to think, you know, maybe a little different, a little critically about how portfolio construction is, is done. And to me, that's like the most fundamental build. So it's fun to talk about the thematics, but those are all kind of on the periphery, on the edge. That's like what people call the cocktail party allocation, right? Like 95% of my portfolio allocation is in a very, you know, sober, you know, normal way. But for the 5%, I'm going to play around and that's where I'm going to buy my weed stocks or my high tech stocks or something, you know, kind of interesting. My y'all, if that's how you want to invest. Um, but I think the 95% of the portfolio that most advisors have that's built on this, you know, foundation of, you know, primarily stocks and bonds and, and using uh, the static correlation that we've seen historically between the two as the basis to get those diversification benefits. To me, that is being challenged by products that can deliver the downside protection in a very different way. So like one of them that, that I like a lot is SWAN, S-W-A-N. Here's a strategy that 90% of the allocation is just in treasury bonds, treasury bills. And then these 10% to buy uh, a call option spread that essentially gives you, you know, it moves around, but 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 essentially it gives you um, seventy percent of the market data on the upside. So what you end up with is kind of like a, a backwards way of getting most of the market upside with uh, a limited ten percent market downside, and it's just a very different way to think about building blocks of a portfolio. And I'd love to see those kinds of strategies. There's all sorts of them now coming out, and I think it's really really interesting. And Sarah, something that I'll add to that that I think that you'll appreciate is if you look at the traditional structured product market, we know that there are uh, quote unquote advisors and wirehouses pushing those on their clients. And, and when you think about those products, they tend to be uh, fairly illiquid. They're not transparent. They're certainly expensive. And what we're seeing is the ETF market disrupt that space. So I, I think what Phil hits on with options-based strategies is a really good one. When you look at defined outcome ETFs and some of the other uh, options-based products that are on the market, it's really interesting because with the ETF wrapper, you get that transparency. You have that daily liquidity. You, you have tax efficiency. They do tend to come in at a lower cost, even if those strategies are more expensive than 
you know, a Vanguard S&P 500 ETF, they're still significantly cheaper than a lot of the structured products on the market. And so to me, moving forward, that is a really interesting space to watch. And because of the, the change that we're seeing in the market, uh, I think more advisors and investors are looking in that direction. See, and that's why it's so great having you all on this podcast, because I just was not aware of any of this. So thank you. But one thing that I have heard of is these semi-transparent ETFs or something like that. Are, are these structures being migrated, these warehouse opaque crap structures, are they being migrated into these semi-transparent ETFs? To yeah, so I'm not, Phil knows this, I'm not bullish at all on semi-transparent ETFs. I think the daily transparency of the ETF wrapper is a huge benefit to investors. The, the very short background on the semi-transparent wrapper is that active managers uh, have expressed a concern about having their quote-unquote secret sauce made public. Uh, and in my opinion, those concerns are uh, overstated. Uh, in that we have examples of active managers generating outperformance in a transparent ETF wrapper. And I, I don't think disclosing holdings daily, you know, we can talk really granularly about potential slippage in the market. I'm not saying that there's no slippage, there's no ability for other investors to front run an active manager's trade trades. I just don't think it matters. And these semi-transparent structures, they're well thought through uh, and they do what they're supposed to do I just think that investors appreciate full transparency. And so what's interesting is some of the larger active asset managers who are now entering the market, initially they were considering the semi-transparent wrapper, but now upon launch, as they've rolled out their products, they're using the transparent wrapper. And I think that's a huge statement. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with Nate. I mean, before Kathy Wood was really the first one, before Kathy Wood came by and our funds came by, there was a, a, a common knowledge a belief in the ETF industry that, well, you can't really do that. You can, you can try here and there, some people on the periphery, but you couldn't really succeed with active management in an ETF because of the transparency, because people would front run you or they would buy the securities without buying the ETF. Um, and she disproved all of that. I mean, regardless of everything else, you know, we could talk about with, with Arkinvest, they certainly proved that the uh, ETF vehicle could be effective for a transparent active strategy. So look, I mean, there could be a strategy that for whatever reason, daily transparency is not feasible for from the asset manager's perspective. And if that's the case, then you know I don't think there's anything wrong with these non you know non transparent and semi transparent strategies. They work. You might have a slightly larger spread because there's a little bit of uncertainty day to day with the market makers. So that you know comes out for the most part in spread. But it's hold not on, a wait, wait, Phil, hold on a second. Yeah. I have people listening to this that might not understand why the spread would be that way. So can you just kind of go over that technical? So, you know, the way an ETF trades at the value that it should, the value that it's worth is because uh, market makers can, you know, can really any market participant can opportunistically post the bid and post the offer. So uh, an ETF is worth intrinsically based on the underlyings, which are all transparent. We can all say that it's worth exactly $25. So the bid on that ETF might be at this moment, $24.98, and the offer might be $25.03, right? And there's a little bit of a spread there, which is basically the hedging costs of the of the market maker. Um, and anybody could trade. And you could try to trade in between, or you could try to buy on the bid and not the offer if you're patient. You know, the, you could play the spread any number of ways, but that's basically what keeps the ETF in line with its value. If the market maker doesn't know, is that ETF worth 25 or is it worth 2502? Or maybe it's worth 2497. 
I don't really know because I don't know what the holdings are on a daily basis. And there's a little bit of uncertainty. Now, these funds have a pretty well-defined mandate and they all have a specific methodology that they use. It's a little different depending on the fund. There's three or four different types, but they all use a specific methodology to alert the market maker in one form or another of what that ETF is worth. But it's not quite perfect. So, you know, again, the spreads aren't going to be a big difference. It'll be a small difference. It's something that people need to take note of. But if you're in a non-transparent or semi-transparent active ETF, you're probably not day trading this thing, right? You're probably buying it for the long term. And the longer your holding period, the less important the spread is anyway, right? If you buy it once and hold it for 20 years, you know, if you pay an extra penny on a spread, it's not going to kill you. So, you know, these things do work to the extent that they're needed. Um, at the end of the day, right, I think transparency is a net good. And I think, you know, the the direction of the industry moving towards transparency has been a great thing. And I expect that trend to continue. So, you know, again, if there's a specific strategy for which daily transparency is prohibitive, okay, here you go. You have a structure that can help you. But um, I'm a little skeptical, like like Nate is, that, you know, for most of these funds that it's even needed. Awesome. Thanks, guys. So the spies turn in 30 this year. Is it going to lose its crown? What do you think, Nate? Yeah, it uh, it celebrates its 30th birthday this week, I think here in uh, over the weekend. So, yes, that's one of my predictions is that uh, either the iShares Core S&P 500 ETF or the Vanguard S&P 500 ETF will overtake it. It's a stretch uh, goal in that right now, if you look, IVV is, I think, about $70 billion behind SPY. But the, the reason why I think that that could happen is if you look at flows over the past couple of years, uh, money's been coming out of SPY and gobs of money are going into VOO and IVV. And I think the basic reason for that is if you look at the expense ratio on uh, SPY, it's nine and a half basis points, but on VOO and IVV, it's three basis points. Now, SPY has a little bit of a tighter spread. That's the liquidity uh, king. But I think as advisors allocate to the S&P 500, they're going to go to IVV or VOO. Um, it's really that simple. So will that happen at the end of this year? I'm sticking by my prediction. Is it more likely in 2024, perhaps? But I think it's just a matter of time before one of those two ETFs overtakes SPY. I, I like this prediction. I think this is great. So I just checked before we came on because I knew this would come up. So SPY right now, as of today, is at 369 billion. VOO is at 271. IVV is at 300. But here's my dark horse, right? VTI is at 274. That's close too. Now, here's how I see this playing out. <laughs> Bear with me here. Um, a lot of people, you know, the difference between paying, you know, an extra three or four basis points is not the biggest thing in the world. But if the market's down and there's an opportunity to tax loss harvest, get out of SPY, it's a good as opportunity as any to go into one of these other funds. So if the market is down this year, I think we can continue to see these trends. And I think VOO or IVV is a very good chance of overtaking SPY. However, if there's a Fed pivot, and the market rallies, I think the greatest beneficiaries of that are going to be the small caps. And if that happens, I also think SPY's crown is going to be taken. Although on the upside, I think it's going to go to VTI, which is at $274 billion, VTI, not VOO. What I like about uh, the, the VTI call, you're right, because of the small cap exposure, that mid cap exposure, if somebody wants broader access to the market, they may be more likely to, to look in that direction. But uh, yeah, the tax loss harvesting is certainly a big one uh, at the end of the year, but also just people who are in taxable accounts and mutual funds, 
uh, if the market is down a little bit and they finally can unlock getting out of those funds, that money's going to move into, you know, the, the granddaddy ETFs in the space and it's going to move into the cheapest ETFs. But the, the VTI one's in, uh, interesting. I like that. So now with all this inflation, what about these physical gold ETFs? What do you think is going to happen with that in 2023, Nate? Yeah, I'm very bullish on physical gold ETFs. And there's a couple of reasons why. <clears throat> First of all, if you look last year, the price of gold was only down about 2% compared to, again, the S&P down 18%, broad bonds 13%, just about every asset class outside of commodities was negative. Uh, but gold was only down 2%. What's interesting about that is money did not move into physical gold ETFs. They, they actually had like 3 billion plus in outflows. And that really struck me as odd. And I wonder if we're going to see that correct this year where investors are looking to alternatives and just high level, the way that I would lay this out is that uh, assuming that we have a recession, which I think that's what most people are predicting. We don't know how deep it's going to be, but that the, the U.S. economy is going to experience a recession. I think that that would put some pressure on the U.S. dollar. So theoretically, we have a little bit of a weaker dollar. Yet I think inflation is going to remain elevated. And I think investors might look to gold as a potential store of value. Um, and and then the other wild card that I would add to that is just the crypto space and that uh, crypto overall, we, we all saw the debacle last year, FTX, we can go on down a laundry list of scams and, and debacles in the space. If you remember, Bitcoin was referred to as digital gold, and there were other cryptos that were referred to as, as digital gold. I have a feeling that some of those investors will go, you know what, maybe this isn't the right space for me. And I want actual gold, which has been around for 5,000 plus years. And so I think all of those things, I think the fact that uh, gold did perform well on a relative basis last year, but yet gold ETFs all outflows, I think that's going to correct. I think that a weaker dollar, I think inflation remaining elevated, and then some money coming back over from crypto. I think all of that is bullish for gold. Not to I mention, by the way, geopolitical issues. We have geopolitical issues still out there. That tends to be favorable for gold as well. I, I want to be controversial. I want to make this a fun podcast. We need a debate. We got to be back and forth. But but I agree with everything Nate said. I'm very bullish on gold, perhaps even more so than Nate is, and for a lot of the same reasons. So you know, inflationary environment. Um, you know, flight to flight to safety, flight to quality. Um, there's no question. Bitcoin stole gold's mojo over the last couple of years. There's no doubt about that. A lot of the flows. A lot of the, you know, Austrian economic uh, crowd of which of which I would call myself a member, you know, a lot a lot of people for a lot of different reasons um, migrated, you know, who, who are specifically concerned about the U.S. dollar or some of the more um, mainstream assets have migrated from uh, gold to Bitcoin and crypto assets while, you know, we had this euphoric run up. And the question is, will that, you know, euphoria be recaptured in, in Bitcoin. I'm a little skeptical. I think there's going to be a long uh, time period before, if it ever comes back, before it comes back again. So does gold kind of reclaim, you know, their status in that world? But but I think there's even a bigger and almost darker uh, thing at play. There was recently an announcement that Iran and Russia uh, are working together to create a, uh, a stable coin backed by physical gold to replace the petrodollar. Um, and, you know, like uh, I said this on, on, on Twitter, I said, you know, assets don't care about the ethics of their investors. And look, I'm not, you know, going to sit on a high horse and, you know, but but I think, you know, Iran and Russia are two countries that, you know, a lot of people have some concerns with. But at the end of the day, if they're if they're going to be transacting, um, you know, oil in gold or in a gold denominated derivative, 
um, that's going to have an impact on the price. It's very likely to have an impact on the price. You might like it, you might not, but you know the the price doesn't care. Those are all great points. Two other things that I would add: if you look at uh, China Central Bank, they've been absolutely hoarding gold. They're accumulating gold. Russia Central Bank accumulating gold. Obviously, that's bullish for the price. The other item that I would add is, you know, there's been a lot of talk, especially last year, about the death of the 60-40 portfolio. And I, I have some some strong views on that. This is probably for, for another time. But the, my reason for bringing that up is I think because we saw both stocks and bonds go down significantly together last year, you have more investors that are looking at potential uncorrelated assets in a portfolio to your earlier point, Phil. And gold's one of those uh, interesting assets that if you look historically, it absolutely marches to the beat of its own drummer. It's really tough to make out, you know, <laughs> which way it's going to go. I think more advisors after the experience last year, more investors are going to look for assets like that in a portfolio and, and gold fits the bill. So I'm not ready to proclaim the death of the 60-40 portfolio, but you may have investors that move some assets, whether it be out of equities or fixed income and take a small, you know, 5% allocation in gold. I think that's another tailwind. Spot Bitcoin ETF. Let's just take a minute and unravel that because I have people listening that might not be up to speed with what exactly is going on with Bitcoin ETFs and is it what you're actually getting if you're investing in a Bitcoin ETF at the moment. Okay. So, all right. Well, well let me give a quick background here. So, the first spot Bitcoin ETF was filed for by the Winklevoss twins all the way back in 2013. And since that time, there have been numerous attempts to bring a spot Bitcoin ETF to market by multiple issuers. The SEC has denied every single one of those attempts. In October of 2021, ProShares was successful in bringing the first futures-based Bitcoin ETFs to market. So there are Bitcoin futures, which trade, uh, they're, they're CME-traded Bitcoin futures, and the ProShares ETF holds those futures-based products. That's been live since 2021. It's actually uh, performed pretty well in, in, in terms of tracking the spot price of Bitcoin. Of course, Bitcoin was down, what, 65%, something like that last year. So the okay, futures-based- so Nate, oh, sorry, yep. I have to stop you here. I wanna get even more granular. Okay. okay. For the people that might not understand what a futures is, can yep. you just go into that and why somebody would- be gaining exposure to the spot price of Bitcoin potentially by investing in a Bitcoin futures ETF. Yeah, I mean, a, a futures contract, it just gives you the right to purchase a particular asset at a future point in time at an agreed upon price. Uh, it, it's that simple. And you can buy futures at different, uh, different dates, um, right? You can buy one. We're sitting here in January. You could buy a Bitcoin futures contract for February or March or April. Uh, effectively speculating on what the price of Bitcoin is going to be at that time. And as the future gets closer to its uh, its maturity date, it's going to converge to whatever the spot price of Bitcoin is at that time. So so these futures-based products, they, they're doing what they're supposed to do. But, but here's the thing, they're, they're not perfect. And because of what I just described with the futures curve, um, they're rolling these contracts month to month. And so if you're in a situation, it, it's called the futures curve is in contango, where the out months, uh, the price is higher than the near months, you have what's called a negative roll. So you're effectively, um, you know, selling low and, and buying high uh, every month. 
So that's a headwind in terms of the return. So we're getting pretty granular here. The, the, the point being is that long-term a futures-based product is probably um, going to trail the spot price of Bitcoin and do so fairly significantly. We've seen that with other futures-based ETFs. But but here, here here's the thing. So all, all of that said, the SEC has not allowed a spot Bitcoin ETF to come, to come to market, but they did allow these futures-based products to come to market. The problem is if you look at what these actually track, so the futures, the CME traded Bitcoin futures get their pricing references from the exact same exchanges that a spot Bitcoin ETF would get its pricing cues from. So they're, they're taking pricing cues from the same place. The SEC is saying they're concerned about having a spot Bitcoin ETF come to market because of the potential for fraud and manipulation uh, at the underlying exchanges. Again, the same exchanges, the futures-based products are taking their pricing cues from. So I... To me, that doesn't make sense. That's why Grayscale has filed a lawsuit against the SEC because they're saying these are like situations that the SEC is not treating alike. It's what's called an Administrative Procedure Act violation. Um, but but where we sit today, we're getting pretty far in the weeds. Where we sit today is that a spot Bitcoin ETF doesn't exist. And it's my belief that over the past several years, because a spot Bitcoin ETF hasn't existed, it has pushed investors into other types of products to get Bitcoin exposure. So as an example, investors have gone into the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which at one point traded at a large premium and now trades at a 40% discount. It has not done a good job of tracking the spot uh, price of Bitcoin. Through no fault of their own, uh, that's it, just the structure of the trust. It's a private trust that trades over the counter. Um, there are block, what are called blockchain ETFs. So these are equity-based ETFs that own the, the stocks of crypto miners and other companies that are sort of ancillary to the crypto space. Again, those ETFs are doing what they're supposed to do, but they're not going to track the spot price of Bitcoin perfectly. And, and there were a number of those that were down significantly last year. Think about a company like MicroStrategy. So here we have a CEO who decided to lever up their balance sheet to buy Bitcoin and it effectively turn that stock into a uh, Bitcoin ETF proxy. Well, you have significant risk there. You have company risk. There, there's, there's debt risk there. So, But investors went into those products to get exposure to the price of Bitcoin, where if the SEC would have just allowed a spot product to come to market, it would have offered a very efficient vehicle, an effective vehicle to track the spot price of Bitcoin. So, And, and let me just caveat all that by saying, and, and Phil has heard me say this before, I think some people hear my advocacy for a spot Bitcoin ETF. They think I'm some big Bitcoin bull. I think the price is going to go to the moon. That's not why I've advocated for a spot Bitcoin ETF. It's because of what I just described and that investors are going to get exposure, um, whether we like it or not. Investors want exposure to it. So why not give them a vehicle that we know functions and functions well? And, and I'll add one last thing. You may go, okay, well, why not just invest directly in Bitcoin? Well, sure. If you want to um, self-storage Bitcoin on your own. Great. I hope you don't lose your private key, right? That's a risk. Oh, you know what? Maybe I'll put uh, I'll buy spot Bitcoin on FTX. Well, that doesn't sound like a great idea. Again, ETF would solve all those issues. Yeah, you know, I think it, it's really, there's nothing in the SEC's mandate that says that, uh, you know, they need to make fiduciary decisions for other people. If somebody wants to buy a fund and somebody wants to create and manage and sell a fund, um, there's really nothing in the SEC's mandate to say that um, that they shouldn't do so. Now, if the SEC's position is that Bitcoin is, you know, is is 
you know, full of nothing. It's going to zero. It's, it's all a scam. I don't know if that's their position. Even if that is their position, it's still there's nothing in their mandate in the Exchange Act that says that they should approve or disapprove a product offerings for that reason. So it's really not their place. And, and like Nate talks about, the unintended consequences of not having approved a Bitcoin ETF um, are pretty disastrous. If you own the Grayscale Trust that Nate talked about, the ticker is GBTC, it's trading at a 40% discount. That's that's a material amount of money. And, you know, there's really, it's, it's almost a trap now. There's no way out. If you're in that fund, the only way to get liquidity is to sell it on the open market at a 40% discount or the issuer, what they want to do is convert it into an ETF and then the discount goes away overnight. If the issuer opens up the fund to redemptions, all of a sudden you could redeem at fair value. The price comes up to what it's worth, but you have a wave of people selling the Bitcoin out of the trust and ultimately it'll push the price back down anyway. So, you know, they've kind of created this huge, huge risk, the systemic risk to the investors in Bitcoin. And um, it, it was created entirely by unintended consequences of the regulations that were trying to protect them from exactly that happening. Well, and think about this. Um, the SEC allowed companies like Coinbase and Robinhood to go public. And look at what you can buy on Coinbase, the types of crypto, uh, Dogecoin, I mean, Robinhood crypto. Think about what you can buy. That just seems so incongruent to me that they're going to allow those companies to go public. These are crypto exchanges, but yet they're not going to allow investors to buy a spot Bitcoin ETF. Uh, I, I just I, I can't get my head around that. And, and ultimately what it ended up doing, another unintended consequence is it rewarded people that were able to find loopholes and regulatory arbitrage to get around that restriction. So, for example, MicroStrategy was rewarded for you know turning their little company into an overlevered piece of debt on the price of Bitcoin, which is all sorts of, of, of imperfections, but relative to a, a spot Bitcoin ETF, it's clearly inferior to, you know, th there's no case to be made otherwise. Um, but they were rewarded for working around the rules instead of trying to go through the SEC, through the regulatory process to abide by the rules. Now, all that said, it does appear that the SEC is absolutely dug in on this. And so my prediction is we won't see a spot Bitcoin ETF in 2023, even though I think we should. I don't think it's going to happen because it looks like Gary Gensler and the SEC uh, want full regulatory oversight uh, of crypto exchanges, uh, or at least some crypto exchanges. And until that happens, everything that they've messaged is that they're not going to approve a spot Bitcoin ETF. The only thing that could change that is if for some, uh, in some way, Grayscale is successful in their lawsuit against the SEC, and maybe that happens sooner than people are expecting. I'm not anticipating that, but if that were to happen, that could obviously change the game here. So is Morgan Stanley going to be issuing ETFs this year? They are here anytime in the next uh, week or two. It looks like we'll see their first ETFs roll out. Um, the first wave are ESG ETFs, which I think a lot of people know I'm not the biggest fan of uh, ESG, but what Morgan Stanley has that a lot of other issuers don't have is distribution. They have a large wealth management division. They have uh, their own investment unit where, where theoretically they could use their own ETFs. That's huge in the ETF space. We always say distribution is king and they have that in spades. So I think Morgan Stanley, I think they're going to have a huge year. I think even these ESG ETFs uh, will find, 
you know, a decent audience, but I'm expecting them to follow these up with a number of other uh, core products in a portfolio. So whether that's index base or probably more likely with Morgan actively managed products, I think they'll continue to launch uh, a number of different core ETF uh, offerings. And uh, I think they're going to be very successful. They kind of remind me of uh, JP Morgan, uh, who's now a top 10 ETF issuer or a Goldman Sachs. You know, they have that strong brand recognition. They have the pedigree. They have an army of advisors. Uh, I, I think all of that will be beneficial for them as they enter the ETF space. ESG sucks. <laughs> Don't get me started. I mean, aren't isn't there already enough of this crap? Why do they need more of this crap? I would say, what's ESG? Somebody needs to describe to me what ESG is. Because uh, ESG ratings issuers and index providers, they can't really do it. Go, go look at, go ask somebody what uh, whether Tesla is ESG. Go ask the actual ESG rating agencies themselves whether Tesla is ESG. You'll get, you know, five or six different answers uh, on the spectrum. Uh, so, yeah, I I won't get going on that. Phil? Yeah, one man's uh, one man's wind farm and clean energy farm <laughs> is another person's bird killer, right? You know, coming through. I mean, there's, you know, the idea that asset managers are on this high horse and can judge the ethical uh, contributions of, of, of other corporations, right? That the asset manager is the arbiter of who is morally or ethically good or bad is, is just nauseating to me. I mean, it's, it's a, you know, I understand wanting to do good with your money, wanting to have an impact. And, and there are impact funds that invest specifically in certain areas. So let's say you want to invest in companies working on cancer treatments. That's a great, I think that's a great thing. Fund those companies, let them find a cure. Let's say you're concerned about pollution. You want to invest in certain companies. There's nothing wrong with that. But when you do it on a top-down level, not a bottom-up, not pushing forward on an issue, but on a top-down level to say, we're going to exclude Berkshire Hathaway for some random reason is like, you know, excluded in almost every ESG fund. And and you look at the funds that are included. We could pick, you know, Facebook. I, I always talk about the social media companies. You could you could say that they're uh, net good. I don't think so. I think they're very unethical companies. Um, the idea that the asset manager is in this, you know, godly position from their high horse to say, oh, we think you're good, you're not good. And then we're going to direct not our money, but other people's money that way so that we, the asset manager, not only make these decisions, but we also get the virtue points. We also get, you know, the power that comes with being able to make these determinations. Um, it, it's it's a nauseating thing. It's, it's disgusting. It really, really offends me. Um, investing towards a purpose does not offend me. Um, and I think that's a great thing. People should do that. Um, you know, but, 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 you know, being the arbiter with other people's money, the arbiter of who's good and bad is, uh, is not something I support. Yeah. And if somebody wants to invest in ESG funds, look, I have no issue with that if that's the direction they want to head. But there's a couple things that I would point out here. First of all, I believe that in general, the financial markets are a natural ESG screener. And the way that I always describe this, I use the same example, but I, I think it works, is that think about a company like Facebook and some of the data privacy issues they've had. Well, in my opinion, if you have a real concern around Facebook's data privacy issues, then what should you do? you should stop using Facebook. And if you stop using Facebook, their revenue is going to go down and ultimately their earnings will go down and ultimately that'll be reflected in their stock price. It's very simple. And you can play this out among any company that's out there. Th think about 
you know, as long as we've, we've been a society, we progress, we're always moving forward, but we do it collectively, you know, collectively as a society, we decide what's right or wrong. There's always gonna be some people on, on both ends of the spectrum, but as a whole, we move forward and, and we progress. That's something that the financial markets are paying attention to and that they will assimilate in, into prices. It's not something that I believe a, uh, again, an ESG rating agency or an index provider can try to predict or, or get ahead of. You know, who sets prices in the market? It's active managers. Active managers set prices in the market. So you're going to tell me, I, I believe that active managers, we can look at their track record, debate all that, but we're talking about some of the smartest investors in the world that are paying attention to everything going on at these companies. You're telling me they're not paying attention to, you know, quote unquote, ESG risks at companies? Of course they are. They just don't call them ESG risks. You know, if a company has potential uh, litigation on the horizon or whatever, Facebook's data privacy thing that I brought up, I guarantee you active managers are paying attention to that and they're they're reflecting that in stock prices. So um, one other thing that I'll add that I have a real, uh, a lot of heartburn over just with ESG in general is that I think the easiest way to impact a company is to is through your own pocketbook. In, in other words, so I use Facebook as the example, but I'll give you another one that uh, I, I've told this story before, but it, it's comical to me. So I have a younger brother and uh, a couple of years ago, uh, we were over at my uh, parents' house for Father's Day, just celebrating, having a couple of beers. And I'm not kidding you. I love my brother. He goes on a rant for an hour about how bad Amazon is and their labor practices and how they treat employees and, and all, all this stuff. So it goes on for an hour. Conversation ends. We have a nice dinner. After dinner, uh, you know, we get my dad out a couple of gifts. I kid you not. You know what was in the card that he gave my dad? A, an Amazon gift card was in there. And I almost, I was beside myself. I almost fell out, out of my chair. But to me, that's a good example of what I see a lot of. And, and that's not to throw my brother under the bus. I see that a lot where people talk about they don't want to, they don't like this company for whatever reason. And then guess what? They're using them. How many people complaining about Amazon or Amazon Prime subscribers or, you know, pick your company. So if I, I just believe if you don't, if you don't like what the company is doing, then don't use them. Or if you do like what the company is doing, then spend your money with them. That's the easiest way to impact them. Not, uh, you know, whether grandma doesn't own 0.00001% of the outstanding float of a company in her, uh, you know, her IRA. That's not going to move the needle. That's exactly right. And all the studies that came out a few years ago that talked about how ESG is, in fact, a leading indicator for these kinds of things. And ESG is predictive of future risk. And all that. It, it, it turned out, if you run an attribution, all those studies were basically um, saying that ESG was underweight oil, which had underperformed. And that's why ESG had done well. As soon as the last couple of years, as soon as oil started to perform better in oil-related companies, then all of a sudden, all the ESG strategies underperformed. It was all just you know, a simple sector bias away from the energy sector. Um, and then, of course, that normalized in the coming years. And think about some of the energy companies that are out there. They're some of the um, biggest proponents of actually pushing for, you know, greener energy alternatives. You know, overall, somebody like Exxon, I, I don't want to get too granular, they're spending a lot of time and, and money figuring out how to uh, deliver energy in a cleaner fashion. And, you know, my guess is if we fast forward 50 or 100 years from now, you know, the, their, their business will have changed. But uh, again, if if we're sitting here talking about that, then I guarantee you active managers know about that and they're reflecting that in the prices, however they see fit. But there's also an issue that you are affecting a secondary market transaction, not a primary market transaction. 
100%. Yeah. And that's why I think some of the green bond initiatives, that makes a little bit more sense to me in, in order to, uh, you know, to move the market. But that's a very small subset of the overall fixed income market. And to your point, on the equity side of the equation, we're talking about secondary trading. These shares have already been issued. The company doesn't care. I've heard the, I've heard the argument, well, uh, you know, executives care about their stock-based cop. And so, you know, if a bunch of people divest of, a, of shares, that's going to drive the price down. We just, I, I haven't seen that in the data. The hedge funds will buy it back up. Right. I mean, then, then you're talking about the SIN stock premium, right? And you're going to have a higher expected return going forward by buying that. So they only care about I, that if they get delisted. I just feel like a lot of this is it's ESG to me is, is marketing. It's all marketing. And again, that's not to say we shouldn't be paying attention. I always say, I, I, I know I feel like a broken record. I have two, two younger daughters. Um, I want them to have a, a cleaner environment to live in moving forward. I want them to have the opportunity for fair pay and you know, be able to go into work. All, all the things that we all want, um, I want those too. I, I think most people want those things. Uh, I just don't know that you can achieve those through excluding or including particular stocks in a, you know, in a packaged product. And the expense ratios do tend to be a little bit higher too. There's some research. Oh, what a surprise. Because <laughs> it's kind of like revitalizing the, um, it's revitalizing active management really. That's what it's done and brought the expense ratios back up. So, well, we could talk about that all day though. And maybe we should in another podcast. But one thing I do want to get to is the idea of uh, the, there being many misconceptions around smaller AUM ETFs. Phil, so do you have any thoughts about this? Yeah, look, at the end of the day, you know, liquidity in an ETF is measured a little differently than it is with a stock. And, and you know, but it's not really about, to me, it's not really so much about, you know, uh, liquidity, it's more about this, this um, herd mentality that's really, um, it's really permeated the entire asset management and wealth management space where this feeling that bigger is better. And everyone wants to be in the biggest funds from the biggest companies. Um, and I'm sure, Sarah, you see this with you and your clients as well that are competing against the very large wealth managers. Um, and they've been able to, you know, put some stink on the independents, you know, in a way, oh, those little guys, you know, kind of dismissive, oh, you know, they could close their funds. When in fact, fund closures and a lot of these liquidity risks are not with the smaller independents, they're with bigger firms. iShares has closed almost 130 funds since their existence, right? Whereas an independent who's had to, you know, really, you know, scrape and save and, and you know, really try to keep their fund going, is not just going to close a fund willy-nilly, right? They really believe in those funds. When you look at liquidity, we talked earlier about GBTC and the liquidity issues that it has being a massive fund. They've been talking in the private REIT space about some large funds that have major, major liquidity problems. If we have, you know, a, a situation where all those massive, massive inflows that we've had into market cap weighted strategies, if there's a reason for that to reverse in, at some point in the future, then, you know, you're going to see this exacerbated, you know, exit ramp with huge, huge amounts of assets all coming out, selling at the same, in the same direction. So there's a lot of risk uh, due to herding mentality of, of, you know, people into these big, large funds. So yeah, they can offer funds, they can offer at scale, they can offer prices that the independents can't, right? They have all sorts of, you know, ways, they have all sorts of access to, you know, different channels, to different, um, you know, wirehouse platforms and different models and different things that the independents don't. So, the, you know, the, the bigger funds get bigger and bigger and bigger, but, you know, people are missing out on personalization, on, you know, being able to access 
just a broad array of strategies. There's, you know, we talked about it earlier. There's so many different ETFs, and I think that's a great thing. There's been, you know, this idea that like, you know, product innovation is a bad thing. Let's be skeptical of everything. Let's be cynical about everything. And you know, the idea that there are so many products is a bad. I think it's a great thing. You know, you talk about y'all. I wouldn't buy it, but if somebody wants to buy it, God bless. They have something for them. You know, they're happy, right? The issuer is happy to sell it. The buyer is happy to buy it. Like, let's let everyone invest the way they want. But the idea that we can only invest in the largest funds from the largest issuers is, I think, really suppressing innovation on one hand. But on the other hand, it's really creating a, a, a significant systemic risk here that everyone, everyone is in these same strategies in one form or another. And, uh, you know, the exit ramps are always, always harder than the, the onboarding ramps. There's always more liquidity on the way up than you're going to find on the way down. And I'll take a little bit of a different path with my answer to this in just in an attempt to get Phil fired up. So I think a lot of people view me as an ETF cheerleader, and that's fine. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll wear the cheerleading outfit. Um, but if there's one thing that is very disappointing to me about the space overall, it's that, let me just lay this out from the beginning. We, we always say that ETFs are the Silicon Valley of asset management. It's my belief that there is no greater innovation happening. There are no better entrepreneurs than in the ETF space. And Phil is a very humble person, but Phil is an excellent example of that. This is somebody who has poured his own blood, sweat, and tears into developing really interesting and innovative products. The problem that I have, what's disappointing to me about the ETF space is that if a product that, say, Phil develops uh, ultimately has some success, the larger issuers with no shame will come in and take that idea and offer it at a lower fee because of what Phil was just describing in terms of the, the scale and the distribution that they have. And I don't know how we prevent that from happening, but it's a real, as somebody who, I, I'm an entrepreneur myself, I know what it takes. I know what people put into starting a business from scratch. I know the financial uh, you know, considerations. I know the toll that it can take on a family, uh, personal lives, everything, physical health, and so I just hate that an entrepreneur can come into the ETF space excited, smiling, guns a blazing. And if they have success, somebody bigger than them can just come and rip it off. I don't have the solution, but I think it's something that as an industry, we need to figure out. Uh, you know, the, the, the caveat to that is I completely get that investing is a copycat sport. It always has been. You know, how many people have tried to replicate what Warren Buffett, you know, has done over the years? So I get that aspect of it, but there's been too many examples in the ETF space where the products that are launched by some of the larger issuers, I mean, they're they're effectively carbon copies of ideas that smaller issuers have come up with. So uh, anyway, that's the tackle I'll take with that. I mean, my 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 view just in terms of investing in smaller AUM uh, ETFs, I'll just say it really comes back to the underlying and the liquidity. You know, if you do it, if as an advisor, if you invest in a smaller AUM ETF. There is some closure risk there. I mean, that, that's real, but that's really going to only be impactful if you, A, you're in a taxable account and the ETF has gone up, uh, or B, you know, you don't feel comfortable having a conversation with a client around that, which I, I get that. But but otherwise, I mean, the liquidity of these products is just fine as long as the, you know, the underlying liquidity, whatever it holds is is, is fine. So, uh, you know, I, that to me doesn't really scare me. I think, you know, a lot of people have a $100 million AUM threshold is kind of the magic number. Most ETFs, I think, break even somewhere around forty or fifty million, depending upon their fees. Uh, but but that first 
aspect I described with the intellectual property, I do think it's something we need to solve as an industry. I really appreciate that, Ned. I really appreciate you saying that. I feel the same way and I've felt the, that way even when I was at the larger shops. There's something, this is, there's something very uncool about doing a Me Too product to try to rip off somebody else's idea. Let's just create our own ideas. Um, you know, I think going back to what you said about ESG, people need to vote with their dollars, right? And ultimately that the market will respond to that. And so, you know, what I would say is I would love to see the market, I'd love to see investors, institutional investors, uh, uh, advisors, I would love to see the market, you know, give a little more thought into the people behind the fund and, um, you know, supporting those types of funds and those types of product uh, uh, product people that they want to support, that they want to see do more innovative things and more things. Support those people and you'll get more innovative funds. If you support the big guys, you're going to get more carbon copies. And if that's what you want, if you, you know, just want cheap and bland, then, then there are certainly great shops for that too. So, you know, the the more the more support that independents get from the market, the more independent ideas we're going to see. Didn't uh, you back in the day? I, I think one of my favorite analogies was the beer analogy, where you compared like the That's big right. three to uh, you know Bud Light, Miller Light, and Coors Light. You know, which is fine. They deliver you know watered down, you know cheaper beer. <laughs> they do it very well. Uh, and, and that's fine. And if, and, you know, if you want to, if you want to drink that at the lake for, uh, you know, a, a long period of time, great, but, but, you know, the, the craft beers are pretty tasty and there's some really interesting ones out there. And, you know, what kind of a beer drinker just wants to drink Bud Light all day? You know, it's nice to mix in a good, whatever your flavor is, stout or IPA, you know, from a craft brewery. I always love that, uh, that analogy. Yeah. Guys, we got to wrap it up here. How can people get, how can people follow your getting in touch with you? It's always with me easiest uh, on Twitter. So at Nate Geraci, uh, uh, always love hearing from people. That's uh, typically out there. So probably the best place to find me. I'm on Twitter is at PhilBach1, that's B-A-K, um, and uh, Armada ETF Advisors. Great. Guys, thank you so much. And everybody, please rate, subscribe, and review this podcast. See you in the next one.